Welcome to Sports, Pets, and Politics with your hosts, Ben Husso and me, Sean Hamm. Welcome to episode 20 of Sports, Clicks, and Politics. Uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us uh, another Monday uh, afternoon here. Hopefully, everybody's having a good lunch. Mr. Husong, thank you for joining us. I'm happy to be here, folks. You couldn't be more happy, actually. Could <laughs> Such you be? a fun day. Uh, we've been diving into some of this new uh, articles from the, uh, the gift that keeps on giving Mr. Hunter Biden. Um, so we're going to touch on that story a little bit, kind of go back to the uh, original story and then bring it up to date to what we know today. Uh, before we do that, uh, how was your weekend? My weekend was Up terrific. until right now, which I know is spectacular. I mean, like, this is just the gift that keeps, like the gift that keeps on giving. All I can say is thank God Hunter Biden is Joe Biden's son and not Hillary Clinton's child. But that's neither here nor there. So fair point. My weekend was great. My wife's uh, grandparents actually celebrated their 65th wedding anniversary this Impressive. weekend. So Impressive. congratulations to yes. them. We went in and saw them and had a good visit. It was a little weird because obviously they're a little senior in age and have some health issues. So it was... Uh, it was like a cycle through showing up, but it was good to be around them, good to be around some family, and uh, it was great. How about you? Very good. Uh, uneventful weekend, did a little work, did a little nothing, uh, you know, just trying to, to rest up for today. Yeah. So, um, yeah we had a ready. really good interview on Wednesday earlier oh, this week, which was, we uh, we'll bring to you guys a little bit later in the uh, show here. We're going to kind of do our interview segment a little bit differently today. We're going to kind of deconstruct it uh, in hopes that we're going to, so bear with us if we mess this up or if I mess this up, uh, we're going to try to pause and uh, restart the interview and kind of talk about the uh, interview as we break it down. So, but let's break down uh, week six in the NFL. Week six in the NFL. Um, it's an exciting week. We still have some week six left to be done. We have two games tonight, right? We do. The Bills play the Chiefs this evening. Exciting. I'm excited about that game. Very good, very good game. I mean, obviously I'm biased, but I think that's the big deal. And that's then it. the other game is the – I'm blanking right now. Like I, I had it in notes. I had it up here too. <laughs> good thing sports is the first part of our I game. I haven't got my DraftKings lineups in yet. So obviously the, uh, we are on our game over yes, here. So very good. But anyway, there's two, two more games tonight. Um Obviously, the Chiefs, uh, it's uh, Dallas and Arizona, I believe. Ah, that's exactly um, what it is, Dallas and Arizona. Uh, so, but the Bills Chiefs, obviously, two 4-1 and one teams. Uh, maybe the two favorites or two of the small handful of favorites in the AFC, specifically, to uh, get it to the Super Bowl. So, it should be a little preview of some playoff football tonight. That'll be fun. That will be fun. And it's two teams that are fun to watch play oh, yeah. football. Especially... Like, Great quarterbacks. Yeah, the Bills did not look good against the Titans last week. But for the most part, they... Titans are, Titans are legit. I, I can't argue with you. I don't know. They moved into my power five. Did they? I, five and oh. It's hard to argue with that. And the other thing it's hard to, it's getting harder to ignore Pittsburgh. I got Pittsburgh in my I, top like, five. I can't. And I, don't, they you know, don't get I'm trying love. to hold off. I'm a Steelers fan. I tried to hold off and not be Homer guy, but here I am and no, they made it. If you're not putting in at this part, I feel like you're probably not watching football because yeah. they are they are legit. And I, yeah, their defense is Awesome. So, um, Titans being good doesn't make as much sense to me. No, but if you go back, I mean, I think I saw last seventeen games with Tannehill as a starting regular season starting quarterback, fifteen and two. I know. I mean, it's it's incredible to watch. There's not too many fifteen and two stretches by any quarterback ever, right? So um, that's you know something to pay attention to for sure. 
they have other skill position players. They're getting healthy. You know, they had a bunch of kind of COVID stuff go through their right. team, and now they're getting healthy, especially at the receiver core. Time out. Can we say they're getting healthy from COVID? Well, Is that what we're going to say? I mean, say? healthy in a sense that they're they, allowed to play football. Uh, they passed God the they health recovered. criteria. Uh, yes. Uh, Thank God. Um, but they're getting those guys back from the uh, required time off. Uh, sure. So they have very young skill position players. Uh, Brown and Davis are both high draft picks and, and play well. And then they got the, you know, the, the uh, stereotypical Adam Humphreys uh, running the, over the middle guy, catching gotta the balls when you need to, right? Got to have the stereotype. <laughs> yeah, but the beast, there. I mean, it, it, you know, Henry is just a man amongst boys. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you've watched the, there was a, what was the, the touchdown where it was just basically, they're like, put him in wildcat third and goal from like the six they're like eh, he'll get in and they just he just got in There's not <laughs> just two. ran over everybody so i think they're again legit i think the afc is real loaded here um with the chiefs bills we mentioned the steelers the titans ravens ravens we didn't even get to right. i mean there's there's some some teams in the afc so um you know any other takeaways be? other games that you watched so you know who should be paying attention to how good ryan Tannehill is right now is the new york jets organization because under Adam Gase, Ryan Tannehill looked like he barely understood how to play the quarterback position in the NFL, and he looked like an absolute draft bust for, for them taking him in the first round. Adam Gase leaves, well, I guess so did Ryan Tannehill, ends up on Tennessee. Uh, Mike Vrabel, for all of his key managing acumen, is not exactly known as an offensive genius. But somehow in this system, Ryan Tannehill doesn't look like a passable Alex Smith he looks like a legitimate first-round quarterback that we should have been talking about for years. So I think that will affect the Jets organization when you're talking about you have Sam Darnold, who has grossly underwhelmed for the first few years, and maybe the common denominator just might be Adam Gase. Maybe we have to accept that the man just can't coach, and the one season of success he had may have had more to do with Peyton Manning being his quarterback than anything he did on the field. I'm probably in, in alignment with that. So let's unveil my top five, which I've already done a little bit here. The uh, Seattle Seahawks, I still have the top of my list, 5-0. and oh. Really? I do. I don't, I'm not there. I think that defense is too much of a liability. So I have a – I want to say – this isn't my right slide. What am I doing, guys? You're the worst. This isn't even – I still do have the Seahawks as number one, but my uh, – my slide is outdated. Well, the picture's not outdated, but the actual ranking is outdated. Ah, okay. So, but I do have the Seahawks as number Seahawks one. Seahawks number one. I have the Chiefs as number two. Okay. I have the Tennessee Titans as number three. That's fair. I I'm very impressed. I watched you know the Bill. I watched both games the, the, the yeah. almost in full the the Bills game and the Texans game yesterday and. Two different styles of games, and I never I thought they were the best team on the field both times. Even though they were, you know, they there was a, it was both were close games, and obviously I, the Texans don't have a great record, but I think they have some players. Um, they they impress me. So I have the Steelers four, and I round out, round out the five with your Buffalo Bills. Uh I've removed the so, Green Bay Packers from my. I think they deserve to be removed <laughs> after this, and I also am surprised to see Baltimore go off. They they were the but I that understand. was it was they're 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 five A if there's or five B if there's a five B like they're they're definitely the 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 sixth man um from my power five and it's early and it could go either way I I actually don't disagree with too much of what you're saying on there here's my only on my 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 hesitation I guess on Tennessee is they came out and they looked 
really good against the Bills. I mean, sharp. They were firing on all cylinders. And I know the Bills had some injuries that, that were harmful, but welcome to the NFL. Everybody has injuries. It happens. And they just had a bad game. I would have been more confident in Tennessee. Like, you went and played Houston. Houston's 1-4, and four, I think, going into this game. And they won. I, I know they won. But they did not look nearly as good against Houston. No, but like I said, I think Houston is better than 1-4. and four. Um, They just, you know, they have some players. They just haven't, they just haven't put some wins together. So, um, again, I just, watching that game, they... They look like they have all the pieces, and like I said, they're just getting healthy at the receiving core, which can only help Tannehill. So, um, other than the Jets, do we have any other terrible five uh, teams? I mean, yeah, listen, the Jets and the NFC East and the Bengals is still the the, the Giants got to win. Congratulations! Who they beat I again? Mean, the the Red, the Washington. Footballs. Oh, the team that shall not be named. The footballs, right? The Washington um, football team. <clears throat> now that being said, I kind of thought that that was a game they could win. Uh, the Giants. So sure. I guess. You know, and they looked, like I said, we talked about, they said they looked pretty good against the Cowboys. So um, it wasn't a su- surprise, but it kind of just solidified the fact that the Jets are the worst team in the league. So the Jets are clearly the worst team in the league. They're I on mean, the clock. That's not, that's not any secret. I think the Jets and the Bengals are just as bad as we thought they were. And I think it's Joe Burrow looks actually really good for a rookie quarterback. Yeah, like I said, at least they have something to, to kind of build around and with, with expectations, and maybe they don't win this year, but. But for the love of God, could we get one competent offensive lineman in Cincinnati? Would that be too much to ask for one person to well, slow down a defensive lineman from planting your rookie quarterback? Wait till after they play the Steelers to do that. Uh, um, okay, fair enough. But yeah, I think that you've got to acknowledge the Jets are the worst. The Bengals, in my opinion, are the second worst team right now. And then it, it does go into it's Washington. It is the Giants. I think the Broncos are probably in that mix. I mean, the Broncos just took down the New England Patriots. I, I'm just saying. I mean, you watch those guys. I mean, that was an ugly game. I watched that game, too, and they were ugly. I was like, I think they had, like, six field goals or five. Yeah, it was awful. I, I mean, it was, it was an awful football game. They don't look lot. good, even though they won. But anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll grant you that. I, I still think that you – I'm not sold on the Dallas Cowboys either because yeah. as good as their offense, I'm going to go with was under Dak Prescott, which I think he does play a role in that. Uh, I don't think they're going to have the same offensive production under Andy Dalton. Nothing against Andy Dalton, but he is who he is. Well, they're different. So, like, you know, you're going to lose the whole rushing side, right? Dalton does not run the ball. He's going to he's a pocket passer. He's going to stretch the field. Mm-hmm. He's got receivers to throw to. Uh, so, and he's got Zeke. So, I don't think that the Cowboys are necessarily like dead in the water without without Dak. They just going to have to. They're going to have to switch offense. They're, I'm assuming going to probably lean on the run a little bit more. But I feel like their defense is so bad that. That's they're going to have to get in shootouts, and Dalton, he can win some shootouts. He can he can put up some points, but he's he can he can throw a dud on the best of them too on some of the biggest stages. So, so this team was struggling to be competent with Dak Prescott under center, and now you have Andy Dalton. And I don't think Andy Dalton is a bad quarterback, yeah. but he's not as good as Dak Prescott. No. So I think if you're having, and I don't mean struggling to win games, I mean struggling to get, they were going to struggle to be a 500 team. That's not an indictment of their offense. It's an indictment of their defense and their overall coaching. Yeah. Their team is, for as talented as they are on offense, they're going to keep losing games 42 to 38. Their offense can score. Their defense can't stop anybody. And now the concern would be, I think you're going to see them fall off a cliff is the fear that they are going to lose. If they weren't in the NFC East, I would have much worse predictions for them, but they at least get to play those three teams twice. Yeah. Which helps. Yeah. And that's, you know, somebody's going to have to win that division. And remember, we got an extra team each in each conference this year. So there's going to be some seven and nine, eight and eight teams that get in this year. So, yep. 
It is what it is. It, um, it'll be fun to watch. You know, the Cowboys fans at least have the idea that they can win that division and I don't know, get hot or something. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't put too much uh, stock in uh, Andy Dalton. We also have a World Series, Mr. Hughesong. Yeah, we do. I didn't mess up this slide. Good job. Uh, we got Proud the Los you. Angeles Dodgers and the Tampa Bay Rays. Um, both winning Game 7s to kind of get here. I haven't watched too much of these uh, uh, games since the Yankees lost um, or were eliminated, I mean. Uh, but I, I plan on watching some of this uh, uh, World Series. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's a World Series worth yeah. watching. I think on behalf of all baseball fans, I'm just happy the Astros aren't in it. Um, yeah. And they're, they're playing uh, all games in Texas. Yeah. So I feel like October 20th might be the first one. That's that, tomorrow? That's tomorrow. Is that, that right? sounds right. You're going to have to confirm I can find. Uh, I can do I, that. I like both of October these October 20th. Teams. They they were both. 8 p.m. Fox. 8 p.m. on Fox. 8 Eastern, 7 Central. Here we go. Uh, no, these teams are both. Uh, it's, it's further proof that it's a balanced team that matters. It's not necessarily the superstars. It's you got to have deep pitching to get through these series, especially in today's game where you have relief pitchers coming in just to face three hitters and then out. You've got to have the depth on your uh, in your bullpen and even in your starting pitchers to go. Curious to see if Clayton Kershaw can actually do anything in the postseason for a change. I'm rooting for the guy because I've, he's unbelievable in the regular season. And I, I just feel for the guys that have that reputation of, like, you just crumble when it's the biggest yeah. stage. Like, come on, don't yeah. do it anymore. Just stop. Stop doing that and just do it one time, and then, then the, the reputation's gone forever. Yeah. And, I mean, he said football-wise, he said the same thing about Peyton Manning until he got it. He said the same thing in baseball about Alex Rodriguez. He would put up stats every day, and then in the postseason he disappeared until finally one postseason came through a couple of home runs, and now nobody talks about A-Rod like that anymore. Yeah. And, about and like I said, to steroids. your point, if you want to take it once, who, guys who haven't done that, the, the Charles Barkley's, Carl Malone's of the world, right? Great right. guys who have never won it, and they kind of don't get discussed uh, like the other guys do. Dan Marino, like, yeah, in every sport, there's the guys that just couldn't close out the big game. So I don't have a hot take of who's going to win the World Series. Do you, do you have a hot take of who's going to win or any rooting interest or just uh, rooting for Clayton Kershaw to throw a no-hitter? <laughs> um, I can't say I honestly have a rooting interest. Okay. I, I think it'll be a very fun series to watch. I think it'll be enjoyable baseball. It should be very sharp baseball, well-coached, good time. I mean, gun to my head, who am I cheering for here? I, I guess that I'm going to, I'm going to ask my nine year old son who he wants to win, whoever he wants to win. I'm going to cheer for that's, something tells me it's going like to be the race. Ah, you know, I got family in Tampa. Go race. Oh, there you go. All right. I don't, I don't have any rooting interest. So go race too, I guess. I, yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't care. All right. Let's turn to some juicy, juicy, juicy. Um, that was again, the gift, the gift, the gift, the gifts that keeps on giving, uh, Hunter Biden is back. Um, so let's go back to, uh, I can't remember now. It feels like, three weeks ago when the New York post released their exclusive bombshell, uh, email, uh, mm-hmm. uh, report saying that they had a, <clears throat> a laptop. Let me see if I can get the story straight. A laptop that was a Hunter Biden owned laptop that was left at a Delaware computer shop for repair for water damage. I believe, um, never came to pick up the, the laptop became, came ownership of the shop. Uh, the shop then, looking through the uh, uh, hard drive, copied the hard drive, and then saw some stuff on there, and they gave it to the FBI. Uh, I feel like this happened back in April, maybe. That's not the only one they gave it to. Uh, so, and so <laughs> the FBI's had this laptop with these emails on there. Hasn't Nothing has really transpired from there. But the hard drive that was copied was also given to former Mayor Rudy Giuliani, uh, who is a close ally of President Trump. Uh, and uh, Not really, a huge fan of Joe Biden. Not a huge fan of Joe Biden. And released... The 
those documents, those emails to the New York Post, uh, which then published the post and then immediately was blocked by Twitter and Facebook, or at least Facebook slowed the traffic down and was uh, applicable to their fact-checking machine. But Twitter actually just wouldn't allow you to share the link. Incredible. Blocked it. Like total 1984, George Orwellian. (laughs) This information is not digestible kind of thing, right? So Ministry of Truth has deemed this to be inappropriate for your viewing. Very scary to me. Um, Yep. So quickly like I, you know there was a lot of backlash i mean even jack dorsey from twitter came back out and said you know we did this wrong uh, i'm paraphrasing uh, he basically walked back that the whole idea that this was a uh, um you know whatever I mean, he, use right, of power exactly right. so which it was and you know i don't know but i feel like the cat's out of the bag a little bit now um yep i don't i you know it's again it was very scary in, in a sense that you know Information is just that information, right? I mean, people should be able to be able to process information and digest it the way they want to and accept whatever they want to accept and dismiss whatever they want to dismiss. And the fact that this was not even allowed to happen is, again, where where I find it to be scary. But And for better or worse, most people do get their news from Facebook, Twitter, and other social media platforms. That's where they find the articles. That's where they get the headlines, and that's where they turn to. I think this is indicative of a larger problem, and this has been my concern going on four years now of – the absolute unfettered hatred of Donald Trump leads to bad things. Meaning, listen, I'm, I, you and I have been very vocal and very clear about this. Neither of us are like huge Donald Trump guys. Like, I'm not, this isn't my guy. I'm not, I don't have a vested or rooting interest in any of this. It's just a, he is what he is. He's not some absurd level of corruption or narcissism that we've never seen before. But, but listening yeah, he's not to an existential threat to the republic. Which yeah, is like it's just not there. Like he had every opportunity in the last nine months to assume as much power and control as he wanted under COVID, and he took none. I'll give him credit for it. Good. Right. A lot of politicians would have done that. You didn't. Thank you. So when you stop being objective about it, every one of us, every person in this country, from the most liberal to the most conservative, should object to any publisher of news choosing what can and cannot be disseminated for public. Now, that doesn't mean you have to push certain stories or anything else, but when you start blocking stories that are of public interest, that is a dangerous road, and every one of us should have stood up and said, this is not okay. The problem is there is such a level of hatred and vitriol for Donald Trump that the people who have it are willing to accept this because it suits their ends, and that is not healthy. Every person should be outraged by this and should be contacting these platforms and saying, you're not in this business. Don't do this. If you're going to start blocking and and doing the truth telling and all that, if you're determining what is and is not fit for consumption, then you no longer are just the publisher of information. You have to take responsibility for what's in it. Otherwise, this is wrong. You shouldn't do this. Right. And so the story goes on from there too, right? So there's... You know, Biden, you know, there's this whole pushback of its Russian disinformation, um, which, uh, you know, Trump's guy, the uh, director of national security said otherwise, said this is not. Um, we'll see how this one goes. But then just today we're reading. Uh, wait, 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 base. before we move on, yeah, go ahead. you know the answer to this. So I'm going to ask you, how many times did Joe Biden, Hunter Biden or anybody from their campaign come out and actually say these emails are false and this didn't happen? That happened zero times, which okay, is obviously cool. something I think. If anybody would have thought these were not real, would have come out immediately and said they're not real. Right? I mean, like, I that would have been the first it, thing. But that's just me. I'm not a politician, so maybe I don't. Understand. So I feel like that's glaring, right? This they and you know I've I've hinted that I feel like 
if they were to come out and try to say that they were not real, that the hammer would just fall the next day or the next hour or the next minute as soon as they have more information to release. Because I'm assuming this is not the, or I'm assuming this is the first batch of emails or first look at these emails, and there's going to be more. So now with that, with that, there it is. um, (laughs) Breitbart, um, exclusive, Hunter Biden, flipped business partner, provided 26,000 emails to Breitbart. Fun. It's amazing. Fun. So, so t- how did this go down again? All right. So, basically, uh, Hunter Biden has some business associates, Devin Archer and this gentleman, uh, Cooney. I can't remember his first name right now. So, they got involved in a bond issuance scheme. And I'm going to call it a scheme because uh, the bond was fraud. And Devin Archer and this gentleman, Mr. Uh, Mr. Cooney, were both found guilty of a bond fraud. Um, I don't know that Hunter Biden was involved in this or anything else. Some say he was, some say he wasn't. Uh, so now Mr. Cooney is in jail. He's in prison serving his sentence for, for defrauding investors. Mr. Archer, and Mr. Archer, if I'm not mistaken, is the son, stepson of John Kerry. Stepson of John Kerry, former Secretary of State, former Senator from Massachusetts and presidential candidate. Uh, Mr. Archer was found guilty. And then a federal judge vacated the guilty verdict. And then the appellate court came down and said, no, you can't do that. He's still guilty. And they did away with the judge's uh, vacate, vacating of the sentence. So now Mr. Archer is awaiting sentencing. Mr. Cooney is currently in prison. Hunter Biden is still traveling around the world. So this is the background just to make this point. The reason that Mr. Cooney gave written authorization to reporter at Breitbart, uh, Schwartzel, Peter Schwartzel, am I saying is right? You're saying it's just as best as I can. Good. Then we're going to go with it. Uh, He gave written permission. He gave him the email address, his personal Gmail account, and the password and said, you can go through it. Written authorization. And the reason why is because he said he feels like he's being made to be the fall guy for Biden and, to a lesser extent, Archer. They're trying to get them out of trouble and blame it all on him. And he kind of responded with two middle fingers in the air and said, do something. So we released the emails, and the emails are troubling. Uh, like I said, I mean, I'm assuming they haven't gone through all 26,000 emails at this point, right? So No, but the ones <clears throat> they've found so far are not exactly going to give you a better indication that Joe Biden is the ethical paragon with no ties to his son's illicit dealings and complete ignorance that any of this was ever happening. Um, I I don't know there's any way you can look at the facts in front of you right now of between all that we know for a fact about what Hunter Biden has had going on and the, let's call them, coincidences that have happened to occur, for you to look at that and truly think that that Joe Biden, at a bare minimum, was not at least aware like, come on. Yeah. If this was Donald Trump and Don Jr., there'd be no question. Yeah, there'd like be it's, impeachment 2.0 would be already like underway. It, it, rightly so, because this looks so bad. Yeah. And in some of the emails, they, they talk about arranging a meeting with a bunch of the Chinese entrepreneur group filled with Chinese nationalists, Chinese Communist Party high ups, very wealthy people trying to set up some kind of a business. But in order to woo them, they need to use Hunter to set up a meeting with Joe Biden in, uh, in the when he was VP and get them a tour of the White House and meet with the staff. And son of a gun, if it didn't somehow happen, now the, the White House records and archives show that this did happen they got the tour they were there this group came 
And then there was an off-the-books meeting with Joe Biden, not in his calendar, nothing that he released, but they went through some of the uh, calendars on the Chinese entrepreneurial group, and they had it noted in there about their meeting in an email back and forth about how nice it was that Joe Biden came and met with them and talked to them. So, again, if you don't believe that, that's fine. Uh, I'm not here to tell anybody what to think. Just ask yourself, if is this really being objective, or is this what I want to be true? And what do you want to say on this before I, I make my final oh, I, I Like I said, I feel like you have uh, touched on all the things that I want to touch on. I'm super interested because I just became aware of these uh, emails uh, as we were sitting down here to, to discuss here. So I'm wondering what's in those emails. I mean, I I have, you know, a, uh, a blind spot for, uh, you know, corrupt governments. And clearly we're in the middle of something that I feel like is right up that alley. And now I'm, you know, I'm just going to wait and see. You know, I... I I don't want to. Ju- I don't want to jump to any conclusions at this point. I guess, but it seems really bad. Um, Agreed. And that if you're just playing the odds, you're saying, "All right, what are the odds that this is completely innocent and Joe Biden really had no idea that any of this was happening?" And if that is true, is that a good thing that he was this unaware of all of these dealings and his son setting up private meetings for him and getting paid millions of dollars? Like, is that a, is that the plus? That's what we're hoping is true because that doesn't seem that good. Yeah, no, it's bad. So here's so, my here's my takeaway. Yeah. Listen, with all this coming out, I'm going to say, is it definitive? No. Is it more likely true than not? Yeah, I think so at this point with the amount of evidence that's there. You don't have necessarily the, the concrete video evidence, but okay, there's a lot there, and it, it's anything else is just uh, more and more unlikely as more info comes out. So if you decide that you can look at all of this information and you still want to vote for Joe Biden for president, God bless you. Go for it. I don't care. I understand. You don't like Trump. You want to vote for him. Good for you. You don't like Joe Jorgensen. You don't like any Howie Schultz. You don't like any of these other people. You want to vote for Joe Biden. You think he's the best man available Howie for Hawkins. the job. Thank you. Just, just for the record. My bad. Howie Hawkins. He's Sorry, Howie. He's native. I know. I Sorry, should have known. But I apologize. You're right. Anyways, God bless you and go vote for him. Good. However, the next time you're going to scream at somebody in person, online, over social media about how in the world could you possibly vote for Donald Trump with as easy as he is, you must be a narcissist, racist, bigot, maybe pause. Maybe realize that all of these people, all of these candidates, to include Ms. Jorgensen and Mr. Hawkins, have faults, have warts, have imperfections, some more than others. They all come with baggage, and there is no such thing as a perfect one, and we're all just trying to make the best decision that we can off of this, and maybe the idea should be don't scream at other people because they happen to vote for a different candidate than you, and they are willing to accept different faults than you. Like, all right, you're going to accept misogyny to vote for Donald Trump, maybe, okay, fine, but or I'm going to invite, or I'm going to accept either corruption or incompetence by voting for Joe Biden. Like, which one do you want? And I don't care what the answer is. Everybody's got to make that decision. Stop yelling at everybody. Stop screaming at other people about how just because you vote for this person, you're an idiot. Or how if if you're voting for Joe Jorgensen, that's just a vote for Donald Trump, and now you're a white supremacist. Like, whoa, whoa, pause, time out. No, that's not how any of this works. And this goes to my larger point of, Donald Trump has all sorts of ethical issues, all sorts of personal character flaws, and all sorts of concerning relationships, for lack of a better word. I'm trying to be very politically correct here. It's still nothing we haven't seen before. 
This is all the normal level of political, is it corruption? Sure. Is it just bad behavior, incompetence, whatever you want? We've seen all of this before. None of this is new. If you just started following politics in 2016, I'm sorry that your eyes are getting open to this because it's awful and it's ugly and it's been going on forever. This is politics. This is how it's been. Donald Trump is not a threat to the republic any more than Joe Biden or Barack Obama. They're the same level. They are who they are. And now can we finally put to rest the idea that the only only scandal in eight years of an Obama presidency was a tan suit? Can we all stop saying that for the love of God, please? So we will wait and uh, see what transpires from this story. I don't think this is going to end between now and uh, anytime soon here. So uh, hopefully next week we'll have a little bit more uh, Hunter Biden uh, unwrapping. Real quickly, I do want to touch on some New York State. Uh, you know, Governor Cuomo said you can go to the theater. Hey, shut up. They're all closed, apparently. I don't really, I'm not a movie guy, but I posted that and I got a bunch of backlash. I'm like, yeah, where am I going to go? Regal closed. Like, I don't have a movie theater within 50 miles of me. And I'm like, oh, I didn't realize that was a thing. So, yeah, well, you can only buy tickets online. You have to stay distance. They're limited to, I think it's 25% capacity to go see movies. So, this is the same thing with the restaurant industry. You know what you get when you get a movie theater at 25% capacity? A vacant building. That's what you get because they can't stay in business. Their margins aren't good enough. They're not going to make it. So either that or you're going to have to spend $18 instead of 9 for the tub of popcorn. I don't know what it's going to be, but they can't make enough money to stay You can't share the popcorn, business. I'm guessing. Uh, not outside of family units. Every oh. family unit must be distanced from each other. And same thing again of this is insanity at every level of what we are seeing is, it, it, <laughs> I don't know. It's crazy. So it's not like that, people are talking to each other in a movie. Like you're literally sitting in silence, facing in different directions. You couldn't have gone to fifty percent or even sixty percent, God forbid, and, and maintained some. It had to be like twenty five. Like this isn't a concert. This isn't where people are screaming at each other or yelling to each other or or even really talking. It's a movie theater. It's poor etiquette. Like this is. There's no nuance to this. There's yeah. no. Oh, never mind. All right. Well, so I think this is actually a good time to start bringing in our guest interview. Uh, I since agree. we talk about lockdowns and the ramifications of lockdowns, and I know people like to kind of parse words and say that we're not under a lockdown, but I mean, at 25% capacity, you know, at what percent is not lockdown, I guess, right? right. 100%. So we're, we're all under some variation of a lockdown, and uh, our guest is Phil Magnus. He's a uh, senior research fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. Uh, the American Institute for Economic Research is... Uh, in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, Mr. Hughesong. Love that place. <clears throat> and Great Barrington, Massachusetts, or and the American Institute for Economic Research, invited um, three eminent epidemiologists, uh, one from Harvard, one from Stanford, one from Oxford, to their campus in Great Barrington, and they crafted something called the Great Barrington Declaration. It's mm -hmm. been uh, out for uh, almost two weeks now, I feel like. I think I saw before we went on, it was up to 540,000 uh, signatures of concerned uh, citizens, so over a half a million concerned citizens, uh, 10,000 something, 600 uh, medical and uh, yep. scientists, and something like 29,000 medical professionals. So Damn. it's got a lot of traction. Good. It's also got a lot of pushback. Uh, we talk about both of those things with Mr. Magnus. We kind of touch on uh, how that happened, uh, what you know, his take on the lockdowns. Uh, before we get into that, we actually touch on something 
non-COVID related that we never really talked about here on our show, but we thought that it was important to touch with touch on with Mr. Magnus because he is kind of center of this whole story. If you've heard his name and you're not sure how, it's probably because of his 1619 Project critique. You're probably right. Um, and so real quickly, and he, he kind of gives a recap in the interview, so I don't want to get too much into it. There was a essay published in the New York times. He wrote a, uh, a critique of that essay. Uh, there was been a back and forth between the author and him for a few months here, maybe even almost a year here. He kind of noticed that they changed some stuff in the original essay, draw it to everybody's attention. And there's been a big blowback in the New York times because of it. So that's kind of my, uh, short synopsis of this, but We'll fill in the gaps yeah. as, as we so go. So we're going we're gonna to play this interview. Um, we'll stop it here and there uh, to kind of fill in some blanks or, 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 or emphasize a certain point that we want to kind of bring home. Um, but without further ado, unless uh, Mr. Hussong would like to preface anything else before I start the interview. No, let's roll with it. We'll, uh, we'll go down uh, in, I guess, actually, yeah, wait, go 30 ahead. seconds. Yeah. So the 1619 Project was, an, looking back at the course of history of America, it was a it was a something that was started off as history is, is forever written by the victors and those in power, and it was the American history in particular has been overly whitewashed, for lack of a better word, and did not incorporate enough about the struggles, trials, and talents of and victories of African Americans and Black contributors to this to the society. So it was meant to why did we why did that happen? How did we get there? And then it, it sought to review through a different lens, the history of America. And I, I think there's some truth to that. And I think we touched on this in the interview, but I can't remember now, but it is a, a some of it was just so far an overcorrection of trying to say, well, this is why something is. And you're looking at it and going, that's just, that's completely not taking into account what the times were or anything else. And that was what Mr. Magnus says. Even I think in the interview of, I, I'm not telling you it was all false. I'm telling you there was some parts of this that were so, egregiously wrong that to let them go and if, especially because they're talking about using this as a teaching basis in public schools right. that we should demand accuracy we should want things to be true and honest so that uh, just some background on the 1619 project okay so without that let's uh let's bring on the interview with uh phil magnus i want to welcome to the show an economic historian and author of numerous works on economic history taxation the history of slavery economic inequality and education policy he currently serves as a senior fellow, a research fellow at American Institute for Economic Research. Ladies and gentlemen, Phil Magnus. Mr. Magnus, thank you for joining Sports Clicks and Politics. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I brought you on to talk about COVID. Before we do that, uh, you seem to have caused quite a stir or uh, commotion over at the New York Times about your, or in follow-up with your 1619, uh, the critique. Um, seems they've changed some of their text, altered some of their text uh, to kind of alter the main premise of the original essay. Uh, now it seems like there might be some works to actually pull the Pulitzer Prize that was awarded to this essay. Can you give us, uh, the audience, a basic explanation of your critique of the essay? Right. So uh, I'll give you a little bit of an update of what's been going on. The New York Times published the 1619 Project last August, and it was put forth as a, you know, a major publicity effort the premise of the, uh, the the entire package was just as the title suggests they were trying to reframe and resituate our understanding of American history around the year 1619, which is the year that the first slave ship showed up off the coast of Virginia, uh, and there was almost a a packaging in the way that they presented this as if 1619 should be the true founding date of the United States as opposed to 1776. So. Uh, 
all the images and graphics that they put out from it. They had one where uh, the date 1776 was crossed out and replaced by 1619. And they had this uh, very widely quoted and controversial line of text on their web copy that introduced the project where uh, they basically declared that 1619 as a year was, quote, the, the true founding of America. Uh, and this got hammered in the press. Critics immediately seized upon it. Uh, they saw it as, as just a, uh, a manipulation effort to uh, try and revise a very well-known part of American history to displace the American founding with something that's more centered upon slavery. And this was tied also to some of the details of the 1619 Project coming under critique, including in my own book, but also other scholars. But uh, what we discovered, and this happened just a couple weeks ago, um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who was the, uh, the the main editor of the 1619 Project, went on CNN and, get, and, and announced basically uh, that she had never intended to displace 1776 with 1619. And here are all, the, all these critics of the project, myself included, that have been watching this for years and we're kind of scratching our heads and say, wait a minute, I remember explicitly reading that claim. Uh, there were a few threads on Twitter. I think uh, Connor Friedersdorf of The Atlantic documented about a dozen different times where she had said this specifically in interviews. And then I get on the uh, uh, the New York Times' website to actually go look for that line that had been quoted a year before and caused all the controversy. Lo and behold, it's missing. It's no longer there. Uh, so doing a little bit of web sleuthing on cached copies and archives, it turns out that uh, sometime around December or January of last year, they just quietly deleted and edited out that line, uh, just made it disappear. And the theory here is that they were getting ready for the Pulitzer Prize season. This was the New York Times' preeminent uh, submission to the Pulitzer process. And what they started to do is, under all the criticism from historians and some of the public backlash, they started to sanitize the language, tone it down a bit, remove some of the claims that were more inflammatory, the main one being that. Uh, and, you know, looking into it, other people have, have now started to, to discover that there are several instances of other pieces of text and ancillary web copies and announcements from the Times that have just uh, mysteriously been edited or disappeared over the last year. Uh, so this kind of blew up into a big uh, scandal at the newspaper. Most recently, uh, last Friday, Brett Stevens, who's, who's one of the few conservative columnists at the New York Times, basically called out Nicole Hannah-Jones and the 1619 Project for editing its own text and said, wait a minute, this is, uh, I mean, regardless of where, where you stand on the project itself, this is a violation of, of journalistic ethics to uh, remove your own web copy and not even alert the public, no disclaimer, no correction, no statement that they actually did this. So that's kind of where we're at right now. Yeah, that, and that creates, uh, you know, a, a distrust from uh, supposedly the, uh, you know, the, the newspaper of, of record here. So, um Okay, so we talked a little bit about 1619. I don't want to go too much into that because really we brought, we kind of touched on that, but I thought it was really interesting. Um, there's clearly a, uh, again, some turmoil kind of going on at the New York Times about this, and I thought we should touch on a little bit. And if you guys kind of want to look into that, uh, again, his book was the, uh, or I don't know, maybe it was a, an article or a book, but I feel like it was uh, the 1619 Project, A Critique, and that's uh, by Phil Magnus. So, what we brought him on for, though, which I which was the most exciting part, which kind of piggybacking on our uh, the last nineteen episodes of our show here, is uh, where we are with COVID and the lockdowns and what has happened between different states and um, you know where we are and and his 
he was writing on economic impacts of COVID and came across some of these epidemiologists who seem to be uh, not uh, in favor of current policies. And this is why we brought him on. And again, this is kind of a, a, I think a big deal. I'm glad it's getting some traction. Um, But so we start going to go into the COVID and uh, Great Barrington declaration, and I'm going to restart the interview here and uh, we'll pause it in a little bit to kind of retouch on some things. We'll keep an eye on that. Let's let's talk COVID. Um, yeah. Let's go back to mid-March. Uh, you know, here we're up in upstate New York and the writing seemed to be on the wall early or mid-March that, that we were headed for a lockdown. Our governor called it a pause. Um, I can't imagine that it then, and I didn't imagine then in October that we'd still be here where we're, you know, basic joys of life are are not allowed. Did you think in March that we would be here in October? So I didn't have an idea of how long it was going to last, but, you know, we all remember the slogans, 14 days to flatten the curve. That's how this was sold to the public. That's how this was pitched. And and I think most people were willing to accept that. Uh, They say, you know, we'll put our life on pause for a couple of weeks if this is what's necessary to defeat the pandemic. But 14 days just started turning into, well, here's a two-week extension. Here's a one-month extension. Uh, Pretty soon, we're still in lockdown, and it's the beginning of the summer. And even since June and July, when uh, most states started to at least open up, uh, we've very, very slowly relaxed from that, particularly in the Northeast. So I'm in Massachusetts. Uh, y'all are in New York, just across the border. It's, uh, it's more or less the same type of a situation. And what it, what it kind of really comes across is, is if we were sold the bill of goods back in March, and now we're still operating under this lingering, lasting lockdown and some of its residuals that, uh, that show no signs at the moment of going away anytime soon. Yeah, and our governor uh, sold us a bill of goods called phases. So we had uh, four phases, one, two, three, and four. We're now we're like phase four point like ninety two or something. So right. um, the, the bill of goods that we got in New York has not seemed to to to, to come to fruition. So um, you know, we, we've suffered uh, maybe disproportionately because of the effects of downstate here, and we're upstate, you know, five six hours away from from anything. And and we have you know we have I think we have two hundred and seven confirmed cases in our county. Um, we're in Onondaga County near Syracuse. And so we're suffering the same types of restrictions that downstate was was offering and, and business are suffering. And, and the reason why we brought you on here is for some economic uh, uh, enlightenment on some of the ramifications of these lockdowns. So I'm not sure if there's a place really where to begin to assess some of the damage. Um, but if you would like to kind of pick up uh, that mantle and, and start someplace, uh, I'll, I'll, we'll follow up with questions from there. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, the, the, the economic effect and the public health effects of the lockdowns have been absolutely catastrophic. And I want to stress that these two things are actually operating together. It's not economics versus public health, as some of the media tried to frame it, especially early on. Rather, economic well-being and um, in our healthcare system, our, our, our well-being uh, to live a, a, a normal a uh, reasonable life and to have access to resources uh, tend to move hand in hand. They're they're closely correlated with each other. So to give you an example, one of the most immediate effects of the lockdowns that's been felt is there's a there's been a radical increase in substance abuse. There's been increases of domestic violence. There are all these ill health effects that are connected to the fact that people are basically ordered to shelter in place or are deprived of their jobs, deprived of their livelihoods. Uh, suicides have gone up. There were even some just horrific surveys that have come out 
that indicated uh, in some of the younger demographics. So you think of like the uh, the 18 to 30 year olds. I think there was one survey that uh, suggested um, in excess of 20 percent of them had contemplated committing suicide in the course of the lockdowns. And we've also seen the the actual suicide numbers have gone up. So uh, there are horrific public health effects associated with this. Uh, But on top of it, we see that those public health effects are connected to economic conditions. The fact that we have uh, unprecedented levels of unemployment uh, in many places throughout the country, I mean, levels of unemployment that have not been seen since the Great Depression. And this is where the economic data get really interesting. If you look at the state-by-state unemployment figures, the states that are still locked down often have between 5 and 10 percentage points higher levels of unemployment than the states that have reopened. The states that have, uh, uh, so like Georgia and Florida and Wisconsin, fairly early on, they started to reopen. Or there were some states, even in the, uh, uh, the West and the Great Plains, that never really shut down at all. Uh, they remained open throughout. It's like uh, South Dakota. All of these states are, are doing much better economically than places like the Northeast and the West, West Coast that uh, are either still under lockdown or still under phase 4.23, Section C, 97, as, uh, as y'all are in New York, as in Massachusetts is in the same uh, position as that. Uh, our unemployment rates are significantly worse than places that have started to reopen. So uh, what we've created here is a policy situation, kind of like painted uh, uh, ourselves into the corner in a trap in these states to where economic recovery is basically going to be impossible until we start reopening in a more aggressive direction. Uh, Following up on that, as we talk about the economic ramifications, I know we're not one versus the other. It seems to me that it would be logical that harming somebody economically in the long run will harm them from a health and a life standpoint as well. I think there's a lot of documentation on that. Can you speak to that, or am I just making things up here? I think you're absolutely right. Uh, We are going to see both economic and personal health effects of this this shutdown lasting probably for decades. Uh, And if you think about it, uh, what are some of the things that have happened when when the United States was very heavily restricted and under shutdown? Uh, we had deferred medical treatments for uh, what we consider, you know, uh, uh, non-essential services and stuff that were, were occurring in uh, in hospitals on a regular basis. But uh, this is this is things like cancer screening or preventative medicine uh, for uh, maybe like arthritis or some long-term health effects that maybe not be uh, may not be so bad right now, but ten years down the road could really have a detrimental impact on someone's quality of life. Uh, we also have people losing their jobs. What do we know happens when people lose their jobs? Well, they also lose their health insurance, or they also find themselves under heavier uh, financial strain. That means that they're less likely to seek treatment for financial reasons of things that could be a very small preventable procedure right now, but 10 years from now could turn into a severe medical problem. I mean, I think it's pretty inarguable we're doing plenty of harm so we've got some data now it's been seven months are the lockdowns at least helping i have seen no evidence that the lockdowns have a meaningful effect on mitigating the disease period there are measures of the stringency or the severity of lockdowns that have been put in place oxford university's uh, school of government published one for all 50 states as well as uh, every country that has data in the world. And what it does is it measures on a scale of zero to 100 how heavily locked down that society is. 
Uh, so 100 would be like a complete Wuhan style or New Zealand style lockdown during the, the peak of the pandemic. Uh, most of the United States uh, during the uh, the worst months of March and April hover, hovered around 70 to 75 out of 100. And that's comparable to where Europe stood. It's comparable to where most uh, developed industrial democracies stood. So pretty heavily locked down. Uh, what do we know from that? Well, if you compare that data to the actual case numbers and especially the death numbers, uh, there doesn't seem to be any correlation whatsoever between the two. Uh, there are states that were under nearly complete lockdown, uh, such as New York. There are countries under nearly complete lockdown, such as uh, uh, the United Kingdom, uh, that have some of the highest coronavirus death rates in the world. Then there are states that are completely open, like South Dakota, uh, that have a very low uh, stringency index score. And yet, um, you know, the death rates there have been uh, manageable. I mean, every death is, is tragic from this thing. But at the same time, we see quite a bit of differences between uh, uh, different regions of the world. So uh, this notion, this entire premise that lockdowns had some sort of effect to mitigate the, uh, the disease, the virus, I think is, is scientifically bunk at this point. So begs the question, why do we keep turning to lockdowns as an option? Why are we threatened with more lockdowns if, we, if the numbers don't change? Well, what we're seeing, I think, over the last several months is politicians are falling into a pattern of the sunk cost fallacy. Uh, they don't want to admit that they basically destroyed uh, the economy, destroyed civil liberties, destroyed uh, personal well-being for millions of people through these policies that uh, they enacted back in March and April that were just not very well conceived at the time. Uh, maybe they were... Uh, Theoretically, something worth trying if it were 14 days to flatten the curve, but uh, we didn't do that. We actually exceeded what was uh, originally promised to us, and they dug their heels in back then thinking that this was a uh, pandemic mitigation measure that really didn't work at all. And now now here we are, uh, you know, seven or eight months later, some, uh, several of the same politicians are uh, very reluctant to admit that, uh, you know, they, they screwed up on this one. Uh, take someone like uh, Governor Cuomo in New York. Uh, what, what did he do? Well, he had a very heavy lockdown policy, but uh, as I'm sure you all are very familiar with, uh, he also had a uh, kind of this harebrained policy of, of dealing with nursing homes, the long-term care facilities, where uh, he thought as a hospital overflow mitigation technique, he would order nursing homes to accept COVID patients, COVID-positive patients. What it turns out to be, though, is that nursing homes are, are, are almost like breeding grounds for the very worst elements of this degree of the, of the disease. You enter a, a patient into a nursing home that has COVID, and within a week, it's swept through the entire nursing home, some of the most vulnerable people in our population, and that's where we've seen massive death. I've, I've got good statistical data on this from the state of Massachusetts. Unfortunately, New York, Governor Cuomo has been uh, kind of playing around with the numbers and obscuring that. Sure. But what we Stonewall do know from Massachusetts, yeah, Stonewall. So he's not even responding to public requests. But Massachusetts has good data. Uh, comparing to the pre-COVID nursing home situation, uh, we're now at an estimate of roughly one in 10 pre-COVID nursing home re residents has died because of this. Uh, so it's been a massive pandemic within a pandemic, a severe one in the nursing homes uh, and a relatively mild disease by comparison in the general population. And yet, what were the lockdown measures intended to do? They weren't intended to address nursing homes. They were aimed at the general population. 
Uh, even going back to, uh, if you all remember this guy, Neil Ferguson, Professor Lockdown from the UK, that got us all into this mess. He was the guy that wrote the model that convinced both Boris Johnson and Donald Trump to go along with lockdowns. Well, if you go back and read the original model, the paper it's based on, he says at the very end, oh, by the way, we do not include the conditions of nursing homes in our model because we don't have enough data. We don't have good data to figure out how to account for that. So the model that this policy is premised on, is based upon, didn't even address nursing homes. It thought it was dealing with the, the general population. What this means is uh, even from the very get-go, this was just a badly designed proposal. And for whatever reason, sunk costs, politicians not wanting to admit their error, we've been stuck with it. Okay, and I wanted to touch on that real quick because obviously he touched on something that we've been talking about here for weeks. Um, and months. I wanted to kind of bring some months, sure. Um about the nursing home thing. So there was actually um, some, <clears throat> one of these nursing homes uh, administrators actually came out and said, Hey, I actually specifically suggested, can we send our COVID positive patients to the Javits center, to the com- Navy comfort ship? And the request was denied. So not only did they have this harebrained idea, as Mr. Magnus called it, when seemingly reasonable and logical solutions were presented to themselves, they were not, didn't want to, didn't want to have that answer. Right. So, um, it seems as though there was failures on multiple levels surrounding the nursing homes. And I just wanted to kind of touch on that. Something else struck me about that. And I didn't think about it at the time, but it hit me now. So the, the, the Ferguson model from the IHME, professor lockdown, professor lockdown, Coming out and saying, uh, what was the initial production? Two million deaths, two hundred thousand deaths. Yeah, it was something at the high point. I think it was two point four million or two point four million deaths. So just to talk, and you and I have talked about this at length. The models are completely unreliable. We need to stop even discussing them or bringing them up as if they're science. And I want you to think about it now. The original guess was two million deaths, and that was without factoring in what turned out to be the number one source of deaths in America. So this guy was predicting two million deaths outside of nursing homes because he wasn't factoring those in whatsoever when in reality out of the 200,000 deaths with COVID that we have in this country about 45 percent at a minimum were from nursing homes so rough math would tell me that's roughly 90,000 of your 200,000 came from nursing homes nursing homes represent less than one percent of the total population think about how awful the information and the hypothesis in those models actually were they are a joke the fact that anybody could still cite them, and every time I hear any politician say, well, I did this and the model showed I saved this many lives, or if he would have just done that, the model said 2,000 people, whatever. Stop. They are nonsense. They are garbage. They are completely unreliable from a scientific standpoint. And the fact that we still discuss these things when we have actual data to look at is mind-boggling. Yeah, good. Okay, back to Mr. Magnus. Oh, the models. Um, so... I'm not sure if this this is the way out of it here, but the uh, you guys over at the uh, American Institute for Economic Research hosted three uh, eminent uh, epidemiologists uh, over at your uh, campus there, uh, and they uh, come up with something called the Great Barrington Declaration. So first, before we get into the details of that, how does that even come to happen? So how do, how do you guys reach out? Do do do? How does the collaboration work? Right. So a, a wonderful, kind of fascinating little story. It's just over over the summer months, uh, we had been publishing economic uh, literature, economic scrutinies of the effects of lockdowns. And this had gotten into some of the uh, uh, the ill effects of the pandemic policies that we had uh, announced. And just through that uh, kind of organic network 
of us working on the economic side of it, we came into uh, uh, contact with several epidemiologists and public health experts that uh, were kind of trying to, uh, to argue against the tide of what governments were doing. We're questioning some of the wisdom of Neil Ferguson and Anthony Fauci and uh, the people that were really driving the lockdown policy. And these are top public health experts that are working in their areas of expertise. Uh, they're working in statistical data, medical science, uh, uh, some of the top researchers in the world. And just in, in coming into contact with them, starting the conversation, uh, the idea came up with that we should host a small uh, private conference to try and bring a few policy experts, economists together with epidemiologists and public health experts, uh, which resulted in uh, Martin Koldorf of, uh, of Harvard University, uh, Jay Bhattacharya of Stanford, and Sunitra Gupta of Oxford uh, came over to Great Barrington in uh, just over a week ago uh, for a, a small get-together over the weekend. The idea was that we were going to uh, host an interview, so we brought in a few journalists that uh, could write this up, uh, one from the British Medical Journal, um, another author who had been doing uh, coronavirus freelance coverage for places like The New Yorker and The New York Times, uh, and then uh, another from uh, Real Clear Politics. So uh, trying to get all sorts of different angles covered uh, of doing an interview just so they could present their case on what are the scientific issues at play and how do those challenge the lockdown policies that are, are currently underway. Uh, so over the course of the weekend, it turned into a very productive discussion. And the three main epidemiologists that were visiting drafted a, a, a short statement outlining uh, the basis for like a policy vision, a way out of the lockdowns, an alternative to the lockdowns. And what they do is they call it focused protection. Um, the idea is focused protection is instead of shutting down the general operations of society, telling everyone to shelter in place, ordering businesses to close, and then never reopening, uh, that we should uh, start to look into strategic moves, uh, more focused strategies that say protect the nursing homes. And uh, we, we intentionally leave it open-ended in the document. So uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, what if we paid nursing home workers to self-isolate on site in their facilities, to live on site in their facilities, uh, so they don't introduce outside transmission into uh, the population of the nursing home itself? Um, they'll, they'll actually address that kind of a situation uh, in a more focused policy that aims at protecting the nursing homes. You know, this seems intuitive, but it's something we still haven't tried seven months into the pandemic. In fact, we've done the exact opposite in many states, as Cuomo's policy showed in New York, as Massachusetts copied, as other places uh, uh, kind of aired really early on. So the idea here is that we strategically protect the vulnerable populations, and that can be, uh, uh, you know, very strategic uh, measures focused on nursing homes. It could also be general public health guidance for elderly people or people with conditions that put them at high risk on uh, maybe they should stay sheltering at home at a greater uh, uh, frequency than, than younger, less vulnerable people. Uh, School-aged children, for example, have a very, very low risk of, uh, of uh, uh, having serious effects if they get this disease. Uh, you know, every disease has a risk of dying, whether that's the common cold or influenza or COVID-19. But we do know now from the data that, uh, you know, people in the uh, 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 adolescent groups, uh, young people under under 40 are at very, very low risk relative to the elderly. This is a disease where, like, you know, the average death, uh, age of death is above 80 years old. 
so we, we know from demographic issues that focus protection could fit uh, the numbers that we see from society much more effectively than this blanket one-size-fits-all statement that uh, that actually has uh, severe uh, under-recognized economic health and personal well-being effects across all of society. Uh, so the gist of it is that uh, you know that kind of a statement could provide a guidance, not all the answers, but just a starting point for a scientific conversation of a way to do this differently. And so that was well-received, right? Yeah, interesting. So it was, um, um, you know, there was a flurry of news. Uh, we, we found ourselves overwhelmed uh, the next day with uh, just, just uh, being bombarded with interview requests, as did the, uh, the, the, the three authors, the three principal authors. So they went down to Washington, D.C. to meet with the Department of Health and Human Services, basically just to present uh, this as an alternative plan. And it was well received from everything that we've heard. Uh, but they went on um, on several television interviews, and just over the next uh, few days, it kind of blew up. We thought this was going to be a, a, a small to mid-sized petition where we get maybe a couple hundred public health experts. We made it open to the public so people who want to uh, you know, voice their opinions before their own government uh, or governments worldwide even could have a part in this. And it just went viral. So uh, within the first five or six days, we had already crossed 100,000 signatures. I just looked at the numbers uh, about half an hour ago. And now worldwide, we are in excess of 500,000 signatures. And of those, it's about 10,000 of them are doctors and public health officials. And so how was it received by Team Lockdown? Team Lockdown has gone on a complete almost unhinged frenzy. And if you look at it, uh, uh, almost every article in the Great Barrington Declaration has the same four or five epidemiologists that they quote from. Uh, one guy is a, um, uh, is a, um, an epidemiologist at Yale that um, has been very pro-lockdown since early on in the, uh, uh, the pandemic, except he made an exception for himself, I think, back in, in early June, where uh, he signed a petition encouraging the Black Lives Matter George Floyd protesters. They were exempt from the lockdowns, but uh, other than that, he's, he's been a very aggressive pro-lockdown voice, and his Twitter feed is basically strings of profanities now directed at the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, and yet he's the one that the New York Times sees fit to, uh, to go to for a quote. Uh, there have been a few other critics in the U.K., uh, one guy that was being quoted in, in, in several newspapers, uh, just blurted out, who are these people? They aren't experts. I don't see any Nobel Prizes on their list. Uh, and then lo and behold, if you look at the list, like what, the fourth or fifth signature is uh, Nobel Prize winner Michael Levitt, who's been a lockdown critic. Uh, so, so it's almost like this, this uh, visceral, politicized, often profane, uh, hysterical reaction that, that uh, the lockdowners have made to this, uh, not engaging the science of it, not engaging in scientific debate. Rather, they want to call names and they want to insist that, uh, you know, it's, it's like what we see in a lot of other public discussions uh, that have become politicized. They, they assert that the science is settled, and yet they won't even engage the science themselves. It's, it's crazy to watch the concept of settled science has gained steam. How, right. I, when did that happen? I don't know climate but we're not going to go there yeah let's not touch on right, that right. good lord um 
So let me bring it into a little New York local again. Obviously, our state and local governments are a mess right now. Drops and huge projected drops in sales tax revenue, property tax revenue, income tax revenue. What are these what are these governments going to do? So that's the horror of it all, because we find local government is not able to deficit spend in the long run. State governments are not able to deficit spend. It's not like the federal government where they can just uh, issue debt and, and go into trillions upon trillions of dollars of, uh, of, uh, of deficit between what they're actually taking in in taxes and what they're spending out. What this means is that in the medium to long run, we're going to find a perpetual situation of cities, states, town governments, counties, that are finding their tax bases obliterated. And this is the stuff that people really uh, agree upon of what government should be doing, whether you're, you're on the left or the right. Most people think, you know, hey, the local town should fix its bridges or, uh, or keep the, the sewer system operational or uh, provide basic public services to, uh, to clean the streets, uh, uh, to have police and fire departments responsible. All the things that we think of uh, as the essential functions of government derive most of their revenue uh, from state and local taxes, and yet here we've obliterated the state and local tax base with no mechanism to deficit spend to make that up. On top of that, you already had several states that were in precarious economic situations, New York to some degree, uh, but our neighbor Connecticut uh, has, has long been a problem here, and especially in the West Coast, places like California, they had extended pension obligations for public sector employees, and that's everything from teachers to firefighters to municipal workers, uh, that were already projected to place extreme strains on their state budgets uh, for years going forward. Now we've obliterated the tax base. It may be an open question of whether these are going to even be able to meet their pension obligations that are outstanding on top of all of the other strains that we're putting on normal functions of government. So I mean, there's been some talk about the federal government stepping in, bailing out the state and the local governments. I guess two-part question, where do you stand on it, and what would be entailed? Like, how, how would it work? Right, right. Well, my own stance on it, uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a deficit hawk. I've long been critical of government overspending. We've been in a state of perpetual decade, uh, deficits for decades uh, unfortunately, you know, this is one of these uh, these types of situations that had we been balancing the budget in peacetime for maybe the last uh, 30 years, we would be in a better situation for the federal government to even consider a policy like that. Right. Instead, what do we have? We have two or three trillion dollars in deficit uh, that appear to be accruing just for this year alone. Uh, we have a federal government that finds itself fis uh, fiscally constrained because it's been overspending for so long because it's been um, basically just open the spigot as a free-for-all of giving out money to everyone. And not only that, we have political candidates that are, that are running on uh, express platforms that, that the federal government needs to be spending even more. We need to maybe socialize the entire uh, health care system, uh, move it to one payer, or maybe we need to uh, uh, further expand different government programs in the style of the Green New Deal. These are some of the campaign uh, pledges and platforms that people are actually running on. Uh, so it's almost like our, our concern for deficits have completely flown out the window at the same time that what may be a, a, uh, a severe public finance strain on the state and local government uh, is now emerging 
and pressuring itself on the federal government at, the t- at a time when the federal government is least equipped at any point in our history uh, to even consider taking on an expenditure of that level. Yeah, and our governor seems to have a rooting interest in make sure that there's a winner in the presidential race because <clears throat> I think he thinks he's going to get money out of out of one side and not the other. Um, right. And, and, and again, I'll, we'll wrap up with this a little bit. So I, I don't know that we have a definitive way out of here. You got some stuff. To- I got more questions as long as you got a minute or two. Yeah. Sure, well, sure. Mr. Well, follow up, Mr. Hussong. All right. Uh, sorry, I don't get these opportunities no. very often. He's, to talk he's to very excited. This background. So I'm, I'm going for it. I'm going all in here. Uh, so let's assume that at some point there will be more de- national spending, whether it's a government and state and local government bailout or just a regular bailout for the people. Minimum you're talking is $2 trillion. If you include state and locals, you're, you're got to be talking four, unless I'm crazy. Right, right. <laughs> so we're already at $26 trillion in debt. We're spending $500 billion a year on f- debt financing already. What is the end game here? I mean, we, how much money can we print? How long can this go on for? Well, this seems crazy to me. I remember when it being a deficit hawk was a compliment. Now people say it like it's an insult. Yeah, yeah. So that's the great question. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, the, the interest payment on the debt will continue to accrue and will accelerate in, in, in the very near future. Uh, how long is that sustainable to it, uh, to a point where it starts to uh, actually become a drag upon uh, the value of the dollar, it becomes a drag upon the entire monetary system? We don't know. But uh, that's, you know, that's looming on the horizon. On top of it, you have people that are running for political office right now on campaigns of raising taxes. They think that they're just going to pay for it all by enacting a wealth tax or jacking up the income tax rate. Uh, You look at this as an economist, and I do on a regular basis. I'm a tax economist in many ways, uh, separate and apart from COVID. This was the main thing I was working on. Uh, Well, what are we facing right now? Probably the most severe economic recession of our lifetimes. Uh, certainly the most severe since uh, basically the Great Depression, all induced because of the lockdowns and the COVID crisis. Uh, And yes, we're going to have to live with that. But uh, basic economics, basic fiscal policy says that about the worst thing you can do in a recession or a depression is to enact a contractionary tax hike to, uh, to tax the economy even further. Actually, Herbert Hoover tried to do this in 1932, and it sent the Great Depression just tumbling into uh, the abyss, basically, because he thought, hey, we're going we're gonna to balance the federal budget, and that will restore the credit of the United States by jacking up taxes. Instead, it does what uh, everyone would expect today. It, uh, it puts an economic drag on production itself, and, and basically drives the economy into a decades-long depression. So, uh, uh, so, so really, that, that's not a, a viable policy option unless you're just doing it for ideological reasons to soak the rich, which I think is what a lot of these people are doing. Uh, again, this is an accrual of many, many decades of bad fiscal policy decisions that now we've painted ourselves into a corner with no real way out of it other than, you know, we, we actually have to consider options like, how do we reopen the economy to re-jumpstart state and local tax revenue and at least soften some of the blow that's basically inevitable right now? Yeah. Uh, going further down this road, a concern that I've been looking at is the aging population. As our baby boomers yeah. start to hit the age of 78, 79, 80 in the next couple of years, obviously most people don't realize this, but that's the average age somebody starts going into a nursing home is somewhere between 78 and 80. 
Am exactly. I am I crazy, or is this going to be uh, an avalanche on Medicaid spending starting in a few years here? When these people go into nursing homes and they can't afford the ten to seventeen thousand dollars per month that this costs. Right. right there's the great concern of it. We have a demographic uh, bubble that's essentially been moving along for several decades from the baby boom. You had a, a a generation where birth rates were exceptionally high relative to American history, both before and after. And what this means is there's an aging population that uh, we already knew about some of the fiscal strains this is creating. Uh, so, for example, Social Security has been a, uh, an issue of fiscal solvency since the 1980s, all in expectations of the baby boom generation moving into old age. Um, can the system afford to maintain operation when it's paying out more than it's taking in? So that's the great concern of what's going on right now, um, just in normal circumstances. You add Medicare on top of that, you add the fact that uh, this generation is now moving into uh, uh, the age of life where medical expenses start to radically increase. Uh, you, you know, you're just throwing gasoline on the fire of a, um, a fiscal crisis, a fiscal abyss that uh, we've put ourselves in. And again, uh, you know, I don't, I don't see an easy solution to this. Um, there, there are going to have to be some very tricky uh, financial decisions made at some point because uh, we can't just like, keep on going as we have been in debt finance everything and hope that no economic adverse economic effects are going to come of that. Yeah, at some point you run out of money to throw at the problem. Is that a succinct way of putting that? That is uh, effectively it. You just add zeros at the end of the bank account through the Fed. Yeah, there you go. There you go. We can go uh, Zimbabwe style yeah. and uh, just print money. <laughs> well, that, that's only gone well throughout history, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it never collapsed a society, never uh, created depressions, never driven us into war. <laughs> so uh, here's the... Uh, I want to tell you this is the last question, but it may not be. I'm going to try to make it the last question. All right. I think what most people misunderstand about the debt is who owns it. And most people don't recognize yes. that we own the debt. China yeah. owns $1 trillion. Social Security Administration owns about 75% of the national debt. Pension funds own debt. Individual investors within America own debt. Am I crazy for thinking this is borderline a Ponzi scheme? That's one way of putting it. And, you know, I uh, there are several competing economic theories of what happens if there's like a massive debt default. Uh, this really hasn't happened in American history since about the 1840s. There were several states that went deep into debt. This is why states have balanced budget requirements. Uh, but there were massive debt defaults, and it, it, it all depended on who it was, uh, uh, whether you were invested in the state debt or not, of how hard you got hit by it. Uh, so there's a bunch of competing theories of what happens uh, with the fallout, but uh, none of them are really good, put it that way. Uh, so for our listeners, and this, I will make this the last question, what can people do? Like, what should people be doing from a, to be fiscally responsible, to be ready for come what may? As you study the history of economics and debts and, and all this other stuff, what are the smart avenues people can look at? Don't invest in and don't depend on the government. Uh, so I think first and foremost, you know, you want to uh, keep your own personal finances in order, diver diversify those assets. Uh, one of the interesting things is even though the government does screw up, the market does tend to outperform government. Uh, so even in times of, of, of terrible policy decisions and uh, almost economic contraction enforced upon us, i.e. the lockdowns, uh, the market does tend to find a way 
to still continue to operate. It's an amazingly resilient device. So, uh, you know, rather than putting your trust in government, try to put your trust in uh, and engage in and participate in economic life. That's always the safer route. Um, and second, on top of that, uh, you know, as I said, that the situation is only going to continue to get worse the longer that we are under uh, heavy-handed restrictions. Uh, even though the lockdowns have officially ended in most states, uh, places, especially in the Northeast and on the West Coast, are under what I'd call like lockdown light right now. They're, uh, uh, we're no longer sheltering in place at home, but most businesses are, are maybe at like 25% capacity if they're even allowed to open at all. We aren't allowed to have gatherings. We aren't allowed to uh, go into public spaces. This is economically and socially disastrous. So the sooner that ends, the sooner that we switch to an alternative policy, uh, possibly something as recommended in the Great Barrington Declaration, targeted protection of the vulnerable, uh, the more we can get back to economic life. And as economic life improves, so does social life, so does the health uh, care for uh, for persons that are engaged in that social life, so does long-term well-being. Very well said. Mr. Magnus, did right, we covered a lot here. Did we miss anything or anything else that you wanted to make sure that we uh, or you talked on uh, before we let you go? Yeah. So the only thing I'll say is, uh, you know, it, it can be a very depressing policy situation. I'd urge your listeners to, uh, to not let that get them down. Just keep pushing ahead. Keep doing the right thing. Keep calling uh, on our leaders, on our government to, uh, to actually follow science, follow scientific evidence instead of digging in on a policy that I think is an abject failure uh, in the terms of the lockdowns. Mr. Magnus, thank you for your time. Thank you for your work, and uh, keep up the good work. Uh, maybe we'll talk thank to you, you in the future. Sounds good. Thank you very much. All right. All right, and I want to thank Mr. Magnus again for joining us. I want to thank all you guys for joining us for today. Uh, we will be back another week, and for Mr. Hughesung, I uh, unless you have something you want to leave the guys with. I've said enough today. Excellent. On that note, we will see you all next week. Thank you again.